Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 46, Reformatting the Hard Disk of the Mind. In this episode, we speak with the Venerable Tupton Chodron, a Western Tibetan nun in the Gelug tradition. She shares how she has used technology to transmit the Dharma, the risk of wanting a push-button enlightenment, and observations on how Buddhism has changed as it has come to the West. This is part one of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To learn more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive your free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit donoharm.us. So welcome back to Buddhist Geeks. I'm Ryan Olke, one of the hosts of Buddhist Geeks. Today I'm speaking with special guest, Venerable Tupton Chodron, an American Tibetan Buddhist nun and student of His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, Tsinshup Sirkhan Rinpoche, Lama Sompa Rinpoche, and Geshe Nawang Darge. Children founded Sravasti Abbey, uh, a Western monastic community in Newport, Washington. Children has also led several other Dharma communities in both the West and the East. She is author of several popular Dharma books, including Buddhism for Beginners, Open Heart, Clear Mind, Taming the Mind, and a newly published book, Guided Meditations on the Stages of the Path which includes 15 hours of MP3 audio files for guided meditation, which I think is awesome. Also, she was the first teacher I studied with, and uh, like so many of her students, I enjoy her very practical teaching style and found uh, her teachings easy to relate to and apply in my practice. She also has an awesome website, tuptonchildren.org, which also has a plethora of audio files for download their various Dharma teachings and uh, particularly a lot of teachings on uh, the Lam Rim. You can find a link to the site, to that site, and to Sravasti Abhi on the Buddhist Geeks website. So, children, welcome to our show. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Pleasure to have you. I wanted to have you say a little something about your new book. I was wondering, actually, if it's uh, if the audio that comes with that book is similar to what you had previously released and published some years back, because I had a a packet of analytical meditations on the Lam Rim that I found tremendously helpful. Is this something similar or different? Yes, actually, the audio part is the same oh, great. as that. The, the 14 CDs were regular uh, audio CDs, and now we switched it on to MP3. Mm. And also, by having Snow Lion publish it, then it could get out to more people. Great. Yeah, I always loved that. It was so, um, it was so nice, especially because I was going to college, uh, you know, an hour away from the nearest Dharma Center, and I found it very helpful to have this guided meditation every day and to be able to go through the different meditations and know that I was getting good instruction. So I found that very helpful. Oh, I'm glad. You know, it was, for, for me, I had led so many retreats, and then people kept asking me at the end of retreats, well, what do I do once I go home? How do I practice? And I would say, well, do what we're doing here on retreat. And they would say, oh, but there's so many guided meditations. Mm -hmm. What do I do? And so then I decided to, you know, make the audio recording so that people would have something that they could just use in their daily practice. Because it's one thing to listen to the Buddhist teachings, and then it's another thing to really make time in your life where you can think about them and especially apply them to your own life. 
Right. That's really the key. Yeah. They were wonderful because um, especially, I thought, especially for someone just getting on the path and practicing and trying to establish a daily practice, it didn't require much thought for me. I was, had a CD and a lot of the meditations are, are doable because they're, you know, they could be like five to 15 minutes, you know, an average in length. And I could mm-hmm. sit down with my CD and sit on the cushion and get proper instruction. And so that was very helpful because mm-hmm. it can be, sometimes it can be kind of confusing. I think when you first get to the path is what do I need oh, to practice? Yeah. And what are these teachings? And you know, how do I put all this together? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's actually one of the things I want to talk to you about. It seems like you very intuitively and naturally made use of technology to reach out to students. And your website, for me, it's it's been around for quite a while. And one of the probably one of the first Dharma sites that had a lot of Dharma available to people. Is it something that you have yeah, you put a lot of thought into, or you just kind of naturally did over time? Well, you know, I didn't actually have the thought to do it. But some of my students in Singapore said, let's start a website. And so they just took the ball and ran. Nice. And then, you know, since we record my teachings, then we thought, well, let's put them up. And I write various articles, so let's put them up. And so the idea was really to get the Dharma out to people who live far away from the Dharma Center and don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've done everything without charge because I feel very, very strongly mm-hmm. that the Dharma should be for everybody and it should be freely available. And that's what I like about being put, you know, being able to put it on the web is mm-hmm. that it's freely available to the people who are interested. So one point you brought up before we uh, started the recording in regards to Buddhism being taught in universities, and that's the, the connection with the teacher. And so this has been something that's actually, especially, I think, uh, I think it's important in all Buddhist traditions, but there's particular emphasis in Tibetan Buddhism, for that relationship with the teacher. And a lot of people in the West don't have a regular access to teachers. And so in one sense, the technology allows us to stay connected with Dharma and have instructions and guidance. But on the other hand, um, we still are missing that uh, one-on-one relationship uh, or that actual live relationship with teachers. And so I wonder, do you have an opinion on that, about, you know, technology and, and relationships with teachers and how that oh, all plays out? I have a lot to say on that. <laughs> well, that's great. Actually, <laughs> I've thought a lot about it. Uh-huh. I know in my own practice, my relationship with my teachers has been very important because, first of all, you have the living example of somebody who is practicing what they're teaching. And... When you read a book or you hear something over the web, if you haven't met the person, then you miss out on that living example. I think if you if you have a student-teacher relationship with that teacher and then, you know, if you live far away, listen to teachings and read things, that that can be quite good. But without having made that relationship, I think something something is missing. Mm-hmm. I know for me, also, the thing is, when you, when you do live near a teacher, then your teacher kind of looks over you and sometimes comments on your behavior and points things out to you. Mm-hmm. So actually, mm-hmm. maybe that's why some people don't want to prefer the web. <laughs> They're more anonymous. Right. But actually, if, I think if you really want to change in practice, having that living example, having... 
somebody who very kindly points things out to you in daily life. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's very special and very important. Mm. And, and also what I've noticed is, you know, there's a tendency when you listen to teachings on the web, you don't have to have the same respectful attitude that you do when you listen mm -hmm. uh, in person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you lie down, <laughs> you're drinking a Coke and eating cookies, <laughs> you turn it off in the middle because right. you want to, you know, do something else. Yeah. So the mind gets kind of sloppy mm -hmm. in that way. Whereas, you know, nothing can really replace personal relationships with living people. Right. And that's, I mean, I felt similarly. I've also, always had a, a longing to connect back with teachers. And I've, until moving to Boulder, I've had a period of time where I just wasn't having any connection with teachers. And I felt like I was always missing something because like you were saying, you really get things pointed out that just you can't figure out uh, a lot of times just sitting at home with, with some technology or some some a book or something like that. Like sometimes there's just some unique things that develop uh, and that the teacher can really point out. Yeah. Um, so I guess on one hand, the technology is helping fill a gap for people who have no access. They're at least getting some sort of teachings, but in, in the end, that trying to get a relationship is really important. Yeah. And I think that, that maybe what, what the technology does is it gives people a flavor or a taste of Dharma, but then you really have to put your own energy into it and go to where the teacher is. You know, mm -hmm. instead of just saying, oh, you know, listen at home when it's convenient. You know, there's something special when we have to put our own energy into something. Mm. Yeah. Right. And I know for me, because when I met the Dharma, it was 1975. And so there was hardly any Buddhism in English in America at the time. And I didn't know any Asian languages. <laughs> so I went halfway around the world. So when I hear people saying, oh, it's so far <laughs> uh, to go to right. a Dharma Center, oh, I can't go to a retreat, it's like, uh, yeah. I don't have a lot of... <laughs> right, it puts a little bit in perspective when you say it like that. You have to say, yeah, I guess, you know, I don't have to go to, to India or Tibet <laughs> to get access to and have a relationship with the teacher. So that uh, can point out a little bit of laziness yeah. uh, on people's parts to not put out that effort to go to the teachers. Yeah, and I've really seen the more energy that we have to put out because we want something, then the more the Dharma means to us and the more we take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, um, I've heard several teachers say that, you know, especially some of the folks we've talked with. It's just we can talk about some things in, in the West about how we want to make some changes to make the Dharma flourish, you know, maybe creating some things that don't exist yet. But in the end, you know, you got to make the most out of your of your time, you know, of, of your life, and you can't make excuses. So it's like, yeah, ideally we would want to have more Dharma centers around or more teachers to have access to. But if you want to to understand your mind and understand suffering, you have to do what it takes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and see, that's the thing. Sometimes as Westerners, we we really want push button enlightenment. We want the easy <laughs> way, the quick way, you know, uh -huh. um, and yet. To transform our mind, there's, there really isn't a shortcut. You know, it's like you have to put the time in and you have to put the energy in. And His Holiness Dalai Lama always says that he thinks one of the biggest obstacles for Westerners is our wanting 
things to happen quickly, mm. you know, and wanting things to be easy. Mm. You know, but when you really look at it, practice involves kind of reformatting the whole hard disk of our mind. Mm. Well, when mm-hmm. you think of it, I mean, for example, you know, now we're, we're so geared outwardly towards external sense objects mm-hmm. and thinking that happiness is, is outside and suffering is outside and really changing that to realize that the cause of happiness and suffering lies inside of us. Mm-hmm. That's major work. Mm. You know, right. when we've been habituated for so long with it's all outside, mm. so let me get this and let me get that and then I'll be happy. To really change the mind to see, no, it's inside. You know, mm. that takes repeated effort and energy, and it takes time to do that. Right. Huh? And so I, mean, uh, I think this leads nicely into one question I had for you, and that's what you've observed about Western Buddhism. And the question is, is like, what have you seen being changed or, or being adapted? In one sense, though, I mean, like, the path is the path, and there's nothing fundamentally different about what needs to be done and, and, and the practice. But in another sense, I mean, things seem to adapt. I mean, that was, you know, one of the things I found profound about the Buddhist teachings is that it was so able to be easily adapted mm-hmm. to cultures as it, as it progressed and moved. Um, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't just stuck. It, was, uh, it had a universal quality to it. So with that in mind, I don't know um, if you've seen any differences or see things being developed in the West? Yeah. Well, like you said, the path is the path. And I think the actual Buddhist teachings, there is nothing to change and there is nothing to mm. to improve upon. When you think mm. of the Dharma as mm. being the paths to the realization of suffering and mm. the cessations of suffering and right. causes, you know, what's there to improve or change? Right, path, right, right. It works, it works. Right. But the packaging is what's, what gets changed, hopefully. Now, the thing is, in bringing Dharma to the West, sometimes if people have not understood the Dharma very well, mm-hmm. they may think they're changing the packaging, but actually they're changing the Dharma. Yeah, that's, that's um, something I've observed as the real tricky and uh, potentially dangerous part. Um, I yes. mean, like, I mean, I also believe that things we need to as Westerners be consciously observing this and looking to teachers who do understand the Dharma fully to help us to adapt the packaging. But we also have to be really cautious of changing the Dharma because that can get really confusing in, in a gray area. We can't change the Dharma. Uh-huh. We have to change how it's the packaging. Right. Yeah, because the Dharma itself is the realizations in that path, mm. and those cessations. Mm-hmm. And that's what people have been actualizing for millennia. Mm-hmm. So we need to change how it's presented, but not the Dharma. And that's what I mean is sometimes it's not so easy to distinguish between the two. Right. You know, what is culture and what is the Dharma? What mm-hmm. is the packaging mm. and what is the path to liberation? Right. And uh, another thing, I mean, this is, I want to see if this rings true for you like, for example, Tibetan Buddhism is really a, I mean, a whole system. I mean, there is a package to it, but it's like a whole complete system. And even changing some of the packaging can, there's a risk of kind of losing something when you start doing that, because maybe this piece here connects to this other part of the path. And it's so like a, this system that just works 
harmoniously together. And so I've often had to worry about that as well, that, you know, you really, like you said, you have to really understand what's going on, what's come before, before you can start tinkering with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so my experience of doing translation, there's just so much to understand. And there's actually so much Dharma that still hasn't been translated um, yeah. into into English or in other Western languages. So, you know, it's it's a tough, it's tough to say the least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, now what, what you have sometimes is some people, when the Dharma doesn't fit with their own personal opinions, mm. then they say, well, the Buddha didn't teach that. And I think that's getting into a really dangerous area. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of things. Uh, For example, saying, oh, well, the Buddha didn't teach about rebirth. It's very clear. You know, if you read the sutras, the Buddha taught about rebirth. Mm. You know, so saying, Mm. well, he didn't teach it or no, no, You know, I think that's going too far. Mm. On the other hand, like you were talking, you know, about Tibetan Buddhism. Well, you know, we have all, you know, in Tibetan society, there's, big thrones and so much brocade and all these different hats and musical instruments right. and all that. I mean, that's just all cultural stuff. Right. So that, I think, can be changed. Mm. And how do you, uh, do you see that changing now or have, have, has it been changing or is that, a, oh, yeah. is that, yeah? I think the external things have been changing all along. I know at the Abbey, we do um, our chanting in English. Mm. You know, because uh, actually I was in Singapore some years ago, and here I was, an American, teaching Chinese to chant in Tibetan, which neither of us understood. (laughs) And I said, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, that's that's funny. Yeah, so now we do our chanting, you know, by the large majority part, it's in English, Mm -hmm. and we're developing some of our own melodies to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, it's really nice. Right. You know? So I, I find that kind of thing effective. Yeah, Another could... area in which, in which I personally mm-hmm. am and changing things is in terms of, of gender equality mm-hmm. and having things be completely gender equal mm. and also in the language and the translation of things. Yeah. Making, you know, things gender equal. Right. Or gender neutral. Right. Yeah, the... Um the part about chanting in English and, and having text and mantras and uh, chants, whatever can be translated in English. I find that really helpful, especially the more I start understanding Tibetan, because when I translate something, I'm like realizing that people aren't really getting what's being said. Yeah. Just just chanting something and, you know, mimicking sounds doesn't necessarily communicate to you. And, and I've found it profound for me when I've had English translations, like, for example, the Heart Sutra to be able to chant that, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. there's a deeper impact. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, 
idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.